this episode of Investors and Operators, I speak with Jim Mahoney, Managing Partner at Huron Capital, a lower middle market private equity platform, which has raised over a billion or up to coming up on two billion <laughs> <laughs> across, six, sorry, across six funds. Uh, Jim started in 2007 at Huron and in February of 2021 was named managing partner of the firm. Today, we're going to cover a lot of topics such as firm succession, lessons from a buy and build success, uh, how to retain talent, uh, some flash questions such as your favorite book and podcast. We're going to cover a lot of ground in there. Before we go down that rabbit hole or many of these rabbit holes. Jim, I'll, let's do uh, two options for some warm-up questions. All right. Question number one is what was your first job? Or question number one can be uh, what is your favorite book? All right. So I'll go with my first job. And this is a very uh, non-glamorous position. I, I worked construction for many summers in high school, even up until college. My father owned a construction company and I had the, the honor of working for him, which means I got the worst jobs ever. And that was by design. He used to like to remind me that getting the worst jobs and working me hard over the summer was motivation to go back to school and work hard and, and not have to uh, do manual labor for, uh, you know, for a career. And he would always say, you know, use your, use your brain so you don't have to use your back. And that was something that uh, definitely stuck with me, but it was I, 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 you know, during the time I sort of felt like it was a little bit of a drag, but looking back on it, it definitely was a great experience and gave me a lot of appreciation for the, the things that I experience now and, and the fun things I get to do in private equity. I think that's interesting. Use your brains and not your back, because when we're doing the day-to-day -day grind of just running a, a, a company, you know, you try to find the systems and the processes that work. And then you don't want to reinvent the wheel every three, six, 12 months. But there's that reminder of like, wait a second, is this actually the best way to do it? For example, scheduling a meeting. Calendly, it works well. It saves hours and hours a week. But that's one of those things like, why am I doing the same thing again and again? Well, you know, I, I think about it. And, and when he would, when he would sort of give me that recommendation. I and mean, it was literal, like, I want you to go out and use your brain so you're not doing construction or, or, or heavy labor. But I, I think about it now and it's, it's really about working smarter. You know, you, you, we all, you know, private equity is a, really a, a bit of a grind in some ways and you, you grind it out and you, you make an investment and you're working on that investment for five, six, seven, eight years. And you can get stuck in this rut of just sort of doing the work uh, because it's there or you're, you're kind of doing the modeling and the, and the detailed work. But sometimes if you take a step back and think about, you know, what is really making an impact? What is what are the, you know, what's the 80, 20 rule in terms of what can, what are the two or three things that I can do to really drive an outcome? And I think that's another version of using your brain and not your back, using your back in this context, it could be, uh, spending way too much time trying to put a model together to capture every eventuality when you can really make a decision with two or three data points and, and you know, be right 80 or 90% of the time. How do you determine that 80-20? Because when I think through my monday.com project tracker and I'm looking at my daily activities, I saw way too many things that say high priority. And 
I just realized after putting the data into it that so much was a high priority, but how are you actually figure out what truly is a high priority? I mean, how do you think about prioritizing? Do you use like the Eisenhower matrix or how do you think about it? Yeah, I, I wish I had an overly scientific, you know, framework that I could share. I, I really get, I'm sort of an, a dinosaur when it comes to making lists. And I have a little uh, a little tracker that I use my pencil and I fill it out. And, and one of my uh, imperfect rules of thumb is that if I've filled up one page of things to do that are priorities, it's too much. I'll never get it done. I know that I never get uh, half of it done in any given week. So it it really is, I think if you, you sort of put a list down of all the things that need to be done, you can, I then go back. And sometimes I do this in concert with the team, either the management teams or my the, the deal teams that we work with. And we kind of run through the list and we say, what are the two or three things that are most important that are going to make an impact? And, and a lot of times those are things that can easily be put on the back burner. You have you know, that's the other challenge I think we have is you have the things that are the hottest burning fires. And those are sometimes the things that can have a, a big impact. Those are sometimes things that really won't make a big impact in the long term, but it just is the, the most near term issue that you have to deal with. But we really oftentimes will sit down, we have weekly meetings as deal teams, and we talk about what are the two or three things that are most important and what things can be put off to next week or the, or the following week. And so it's, if there was a perfect sort of uh, hit a button and some some computer algorithm could prioritize things, it would be uh, it would be easy, but it's not. It's the, there's the uh, the reality of dealing with people and obviously needing to to really uh, get the buy-in on the things that need to be done. And I think that's one of the one of the biggest challenges. I think one of the biggest opportunities of working in the middle market. You have to. I might have my priority, but a CEO might have a completely different view on what their priority is. And getting really getting a meeting of the minds and getting buy-in before you start to launch off on doing the next thing is critical. Speaking of algorithms in the middle market, it's like the venture community and the startup community is trying to, you know, there's so much in, in our lives that can be driven by an algorithm, that can be driven by technology. You know, applying that to the middle market is to what extent do you think deal making? investing or what you do is going to be driven by algorithms. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I came from a background in, in trading and the things that I did 20 plus years ago, I started on the trading floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. That's That makes me a dinosaur. You, you, you knew really at the time that open outcry trading was going to be something that was, was not going to last. Those floors don't exist. But, um, you know, I, I, I think about dealing with people and dealing with the human element. And at Huron, one of our focus areas is really working with being the first institutional capital. So you're working with the original entrepreneurs, or you're working with second or third generation family members. And the key really is to make a human connection. They, they are getting ready to turn over their, what is effectively like one of their children. They're going to turn over one of their children to you as the next owner and making that human connection is critical, and and we we did some some strategy work uh, as a firm this year and last year, and really determined that one of one of the, the advantages that we think we have is we we don't come off as being a you know a set of know-it-alls. We don't come off as being you know this is the playbook and this is the algorithm so to speak of 
how you need to run your business. Everything has a little bit of an element of uh, being bespoke to it. But being able to make that human connection is something that is, it's not going to go away uh, ever. And that's one of the things that I like about operating in the middle market. You need to make a connection. Somebody has to trust you. As long as you're talking to a decision maker, somebody has to trust you that you're going to do right by their business. You're going to do right by their people. And uh, and, and that is a, that's something that for me, and I, I talk to a lot of our, our more junior level people about what do I love about the middle market? We're never gonna we're never gonna be replaced be replaced by a computer algorithm, and that is um, that's what makes it interesting. It also makes is what makes it challenging. You're dealing with this is a people business. That's a cliche, but you're dealing with people, and you have to motivate the management teams. You have to get buy-in from the management teams, and I would say that's probably one of the things that I like most about the 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 job is yeah. never the same. You're always dealing with a different challenge. But it's not just running a spreadsheet. It's not just understanding a PL. It's figuring out how am I going to deal with this situation with this person and how am I going to get buy-in? Getting buy-in is, is critical. We've seen a number of times in businesses where if you you might be you might be pushing the right agenda, but if you push too hard or if you push beyond somebody's comfort zone. Uh, and they disengage, all of a sudden you're left with a with a great business without a leader or without a, uh, a leadership team, and then you're, you're really in trouble. So. Well, let's dive, let's dive right into that, because I think that is one of the critical topics is how do you think about motivating and incentivizing both philosophically, uh, maybe through a framework, as well as specifically through incentives? So for example, Daniel Pink has in his book, talking about you know mastery autonomy and purpose and kind of counteracting the traditional framework of carrot and stick um how how do you think about motivating first yourself and the team and the portfolio do you have motivational principles and a framework and then i'd love to get into the specifics around incentives how we should think about incentives, how we should not think about incentives and I think, you know, whether it's motivating myself or the team at Huron or our portfolio leadership teams, I would say they're all really, we think about it in, in the same way. And, and it's interesting to me how often you find in private equity, and, and sometimes we're guilty of it too, where you are promoting something at one of your portfolio companies. But if you look in the mirror, you realize that maybe you're not executing your own business plan in the way that you're sort of recommending that the private equity or that the portfolio company sort of conduct itself. So I, I would say, you know, the, the the table stakes, when you think about incentives, I think immediately people go to financial incentives. Okay. So that, and I, and I really view that as, as, as table stakes, that's sort of a ubiquitous in private equity and almost like motherhood and apple pie, where you want everybody to think like an equity owner. And, and so for us, it's important to have I mean, you, you want to have people that have the right sort of current compensation and bonus plans. You want you want people to be not short-term focused. We don't want to hit this year's numbers at the expense of creating equity value, but to have people to own equity in the in the company, uh, have uh, incentive shares in the company, and have everybody be mo- uh, focused and motivated around what do we want to look like in five years, what do we want to look like in six or seven years versus let's just hit this year's numbers. So that, I mean, that, 
that that's important. I would view that as table stakes. I mean, that doesn't, uh, you know, having something in a contract doesn't necessarily motivate people to get out of bed in the morning. So when you sort of then step back and think about core values, core principles, we we just went through a process this year at Huron to to update our core values, and and we we've had those that have been in, in existence from the beginning. But you have to like everything else, refresh them and make sure they're relevant and make sure they're they're uh, they resonate with people, and and then more importantly, living those core values. And and so I, I would say that is a big having uh, having buy-in, having a culture that is really uh, focused and motivated on winning as a team, and on sort of yeah. seeing seeing those core values. And and one of the worst things you can do is promote somebody or not address an issue if somebody isn't living up to the core values. So it's something that we hire by. It's something that we promote by. It's something that we re reward people by. And I think that is getting buy into that, getting people aligned to make sure we're all moving in, in the right direction. That That's kind of the starting point. That's the catalyst. The financial incentives, important table stakes, motherhood and apple pie, but those things don't mean anything if you don't sort of have the we're going to wake up every day and yeah. live it and breathe it and get people excited. Let's dive into the the different types of financial incentives and the purpose of it. So you have, and I'm thinking about this question because of the book behind me, No Rules Rules, by uh, Reed Hastings and I forget the co-author. But you know, like Netflix doesn't have a bonus; they yeah. play top of personal market, and then. Um, and they encourage their employees to go out there and talk to recruiters. Like, hey, listen, go out and see what your value is. Come back to us. And, and then they have the keeper test being, you know, the keeper test is if one of your employees came to you and said, hey, I'm thinking about going, how hard would you fight to keep them? Yeah. Um, but it's, this has made me think about a number of things, such as how do we create as a small uh, professional services firm, um, how do we think about incentives? Like equity is for a startup when there's significant risk, you know, paying less. So you compensate with equity, like we're yeah. profitable. We've been doing this for three years, probably not a fit for us at this stage. But one of the things I, we are really wrestling with is how should we think about bonuses? Should bon what is the, what is the function of a bonus? Does the data support that a bonus works versus you know, I, I can see how the equity works in the private equity context with the buyout and long-term thinking, but does a bonus work? Like if, maybe this is a bigger question. If you had to redesign the investment banking and private equity incentive structure, should bonuses exist? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And the first thing I think of is typically when people leave, it's not because they're leaving for compensation reasons. Now they might be getting a little more money here or there, but if people are, if they have an opportunity to leave, uh, it's usually for other reasons. It's they they don't believe in the vision of the firm, they don't believe their, you know, they, they don't believe in the leadership. And so I think it's important. It's it's something that I think every every bonus plan, and we've tried all sorts of different ones, not you know, both at Huron and at our portfolio companies. There's loopholes and flaws in every bonus plan. You know, it motivates somebody to do one thing at the expense of something else. So there isn't there isn't perfection there. I, I think people they want to and, and more so today they want to believe in a mission, 
uh, and they want to believe in, in the case of private equity, they want to believe that the long-term carry opportunity, again, sort of thinking out five years, 10 years, you know, they, they want to see that as a, as a true wealth creation reality, not something that looks good on a piece of paper and, and you have no likelihood of, uh, of actually realizing it. But that every time we've updated and tried to adjust our, our bonus programs, both inside the, uh, inside the company and at our portfolio companies, you create one benefit at the expense of another. So it, it's imperfect. And we've tried some that are KPI driven, some that are financial driven, some that are, you know, you have an annual bonus program at, that has a range and allows people to sort of overdrive a, you know, an outcome. And at the same time, you have everybody, when you have that case, everybody expects to come in at the high end of the range. So it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. I wish I had a simple answer to it. For me, I think the biggest thing is over communicating, over communicating sort of what the opportunity is, what people's progress is against the opportunity and making sure that they have, you know, they're not waking up one day and sort of getting a, you know, a piece of paper that's slid across the desk that says, here's your number and we'll talk yeah. to you next year. That's that, that doesn't fly anymore. Well, to that point, like in over communicating, there's a mutual responsibility in that on us as the managers, we are, our responsibility is to be transparent, but on them as receivers of the information, also understanding like, hey, this is imperfect, imperfect information. And three months, yeah, yeah. we might have data that suggests, hey, what we thought was a 50-50 shot about this division or product line existing, like now we have more data that supports we actually should. Well, it, it goes back to the algorithm question I made earlier. We oftentimes get the question, what exactly do I need to do to get to this, to this next level? And it's very hard to lay out a, you know, A plus B plus C plus D equals promotion. It just, it, it never works out that way because there's all sorts of other inputs that happen along the way. I, and I think the people that I've seen progress more quickly are the ones that they're not obsessing about exactly, do I do this or do I do that? They're showing up every day, they're taking on more, they're trying to step up and, and take greater responsibility and take initiative and those are the ones that are that are sort of more naturally moving up the uh moving up the ladder on a on a more accelerated time you know timeline so i wish i had a perfect answer for it it's something that we i would say we assess and reassess probably every couple of years you know even the the notion of carry it's something that if you're successful it gets paid out 5 years from now 6 years from now 7 years from now I think we've learned that people discount that back to a point where it's in the early years, it's almost hard to, to assign a lot of value to it. The other extreme is we've had in the last couple of years, something that we call kind of a spot bonus or a, you know, above and beyond bonus where somebody does something and immediately they get you know, right out of the gates bonus. And we found that in certain cases, people like that. In other cases, people don't like it because Maybe there's somebody else that was doing something and they feel like they didn't get recognized. So, it, it, you know, well, that's a great like some thing. cases you, don't, you can't win. I mean, it's the idea of a bonus. I mean, conceptually, I am financially rewarding something for going above and beyond. But isn't that the point of just a top of market salary? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How do you delineate what's your job and what's what's sort of above and beyond? I mean, 
everyone is and always also for our them. for our specific business let's say you know person a is on a project and person b is on a different project and well guess what they might not have had a choice to get staffed on that project which had a greater responsibility or whatever how can we have a clear system to evaluate as opposed to did you make a thousand widgets yes or no yeah because we also don't want to be on you had 10 linkedin posts and your bogey was 25 likes per post because then you're doing what works as opposed to being creative which is fundamental to the business that we're in and part of the definition of something creative is something that might not work or if you know in in the private equity experience you're a junior level person that gets staffed on a portfolio company that is maybe underperforming and you go from underperforming to average performing and that would be a success but you know is that is that ultimately what we're all uh shooting for as investors no we want outstanding performance that doesn't recognize the work that that individual did on that company to take it from underperforming to average performing so it, it's anytime you put a plan in place there are flaws that just don't capture every eventuality yeah i think that we're probably gonna the the short-term solution for next year is something around just profit sharing because then it's tied to company performance yep and then if everyone on the team is def, is a high performer then that should be shared equally yep. um, and also i think there's so many pitfalls around individual assessing individual contribution but yep. let's let's go back into you were mentioning, I think, feedback, or maybe you didn't, and I'm just projecting. <laughs> um, but let, let's let's dive into how do you think about a feedback loop and getting quality feedback, consistent feedback? You know, my assumption is that the annual performance review is dead and that we should give constant feedback. Now, at one side of the spectrum, you have Bridgewater or like, uh, no rules, rules at Netflix, where if a meeting is done, you call them up right then and you say, hey, during that meeting, this happened and this is how it made me feel. I wonder if we can work on it. Yeah. Versus the other extreme example is annual performance review. So how do you think about first soliciting and receiving feedback to yourself? And what is the most difficult feedback you have received? And then the second question is, how do you as a team view feedback? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with your comment on the annual on the annual review. I, I you know, we we still do have an annual review process. Our our structured process is we have an annual review and we have a mid year review. And um, but I would tell you that our the 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 most valuable feedback, uh, I think both for for me as a as a as a leader for others who are you know working uh, with me on on different initiatives. Uh, what we what we do, and one of my sort of I don't know tools or techniques is, you know, we work in a project based environment. Our projects are deals, and it might be a portfolio, uh, a, a company where you where you you invest in a, a new platform. It might be an add on, but I I think giving feedback it's a natural breakpoint when you close a deal or when you. Uh, maybe when a deal falls apart and you don't close the deal, trying to give feedback in in uh, the private equity and the transaction world, trying to do it every week or every month doesn't feel natural. The cadence for, for us or for me has worked on a, after the conclusion of a deal, I'll go out to lunch or to breakfast or have coffee or a drink 
with with the people on the deal teams, and we'll just have an uh, you know an informal uh, conversation about what's working, what's not working, what what things do I see that are you know great things that a person's doing. Where do I see some opportunities that need work? And I try to get that feedback myself. I feel like it's you know as you take on leadership positions, uh, it can get very lonely, and you don't know sometimes if you you know what you're doing is resonating with people. And I would take I would say that that isn't listed anywhere in our uh, our formal HR manual, and this is the way to do it. But I think that's something that has worked the best for me because you create an environment where you're out of the office, you're having a conversation, you're not uh, writing notes down in a little notepad. It's more of an open dialogue around how is somebody doing, how are they progressing, what what are the next few things they can do to make uh, to, you know, to kind of make the next step, but then also to get that feedback, uh, for myself. And I think that's something I've done, uh, you know, for almost as long as I've been at Huron and it, it is a natural, it's a natural break point in the deal world. When you're, when you kind of come to the conclusion of a deal, you've been working on it for three months, you have enough of a portfolio of experiences, pros and cons, that that's a natural. And I think if, if, if you do something like that, and you couple that with the annual feedback, you know, the annual feedback process becomes then just a, an assembling of those things that were talked about all year long. And so I think that's, I recognize that, you know, when I was working my way up through my career, I didn't necessarily seek out, nor did I feel the need to try to get feedback every month or two months. And it was just yeah. more of a, uh, maybe it's a generational thing. I, I don't know, but um, I, I, I think that is a thing of the past. I well, think, I think that, you know, it's, it's an interesting topic in what is the correct cadence and format of feedback, because it's made us think, especially in this past month during December, what is quality feedback? What is the purpose of feedback? And one of the things that we're starting to think about is at you know, in earlier stage of a business, there are so many unknowns and so many things that are in creation that having a culture of immediate quality feedback in the framework of radical candor of challenge directly, but care personally, such as, hey, you just did this LinkedIn post. Um, why did you use this hashtag when that's pointing in the wrong direction? Let's use this. Yeah. Um, or this particular video that we did um, what was the decision around this particular format, you know, this camera angle and that kind of constant iterative approach, which we now do to uh, Monday, I'm sorry, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we have a 20 minute standup and it's always stuff such as training, which we had that feedback cycle. Now, where I think we are not good at is how I have not, um, I have not been good at setting the expectation of please give me direct feedback and it has to be critical and actually i'm sorry it has to be it can be both if you see something good say something then but also on the downside like if in a meeting if i'm stepping over the toes of our colleague who's run the meeting tell me right then and there and then i just want to help i think we're trying to create that culture of more immediate feedback cycles yeah, but it also can be too frequent. I mean, if you're trying to have immediate feedback every every three days on something, it just becomes you know not not that not that valuable. But I, I will 
I'll do the same thing. People that I work closely with, I will, you know, one-on-one pull them aside and say, okay, you know, am I crazy? Like, mm-hmm. and by the way, you have, to, <laughs> you have to tell me that I am like, don't just say, yeah, this, this makes sense. And because it's hard, you know, oftentimes you feel like you're working in a little bit of a vacuum and you have input from people, but you wonder if, um, if they're telling you, you know, they're being honest and giving you the bad news about, I think that your idea was completely, uh, you know, over the edge and, and uh, you're thinking about completely the wrong way and you need to think about it this way. So I, I do, you know, I'll joke with a few of our, our, uh, a few of the folks that I work closely with that you have to, you're not allowed to just tell me you like my ideas. You have to tell me that I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. Otherwise, uh, I'm, I'm going to not be comfortable that you're giving me the straight dope. Yeah. I think to that, to that point, I've, I've tried to share a lot of personal stories. Like here's when I did something wrong. I did six years of banking and I fundamentally didn't have the core skill set. And I, that lasted for three years that lasted for four. But then when the firm upgraded at year five and year six, guess what? I didn't have that fundamental skill set. And I, what got me here would not get the firm there. Yeah. And so I try to lead with, I'm trying to do this more of leading with personal um, stories to almost like create an environment where it's like, Hey, let's just, it's cool. Like, let's have a growth mindset. Let's figure out how to grow from here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is kind of a related to what we were riffing about earlier on uh, the EOS framework, the entrepreneurial operating system and traction, uh, which was written by Gino Wickman in his book, Traction. Uh, so just kind of curious on, you know, how, how you do and don't implement uh, EOS and just kind of how the, the firm has thought about that framework. Yeah, so that was, um, it was something that we started working on probably back in 2018. And, and I think, um, you know, it, one of the things that it did is it brought, you know, we as a firm, we used to have, we still do, we have a Monday morning meeting. And when I joined the firm, I think there were five or six people in the firm. And the Monday morning meeting was everything that was going on at the firm was talked about and covered at the Monday morning meeting. And so it was transact it was deals and transactions and things that were happening and as the firm grew the the Monday morning meeting became more of a long list of uh deals that we were looking at or deals that were in progress and a lot of the the management you know so you sort of I think uh I don't know if it's a Gino Wickman term or not but you have this notion of working in the business and working on the business and so we had a lot of things where we were working in the business but we never had time where we set aside specific time to work on the business. And so that was a that was a very important discipline that we were able to sort of set aside and start to, to have a framework for working on the business and, and solving issues. And that I would say was a was a very big breakthrough for us because as it used to, you know, it used to be just a handful of people and you would walk around and everyone would know what was happening in the firm. Decisions were it, you didn't have to have sort of a formal framework around decisions. It was people kind of got together in a room and said, what do you think about this? Good idea. Let's do that. And as we grew, we, we really outgrew that, that sort of framework for managing the firm. So, so EOS put a framework together for us, gave us that sort of free space every week, an hour and a half every week to sit down and, 
and kind of work through what are the hot topics, what are the issues, what, are, what is the progress that we're making. And it created a discipline that, uh, that we still use today. I would tell you that we have morphed some of the things that, that were the pure EOS things. Um, and you know, some of the, some of the things that, uh, that we used, we felt maybe applied better to a more of a manufacturing type business than a, yeah. than a, a private equity firm or even a consulting type business. But the discipline of getting together every week as a leadership team, and uh, um, I forget the official term of it, but but solving issues. I mean, that was a very that was a very difficult thing for us to wrap our head around. And the issue the, tracker. Well, the issue tracker, but how the biggest thing was how to properly state what the issue is. We would, you know, we'd have all sorts of things on the list, and you'd kind of talk about it, and people would debate things. And we would have our EOS implementer come in and sit through our meetings and, and you know, he would observe, you haven't properly created the, or you haven't drafted the, the, the issue in the right way. And you have, you're impacting your ability to solve the issue. The other thing I think that was important was this notion of rocked, which is what is your big strategic um, imperative for the next three months? And, and that was something that if you looked at the leadership team, you had a bunch of people that were just doers. You know, we just give us a list, we're gonna go do it. And sitting down and having um, a framework, not just to do things, but to sort of interact and solve issues, it allowed us to sort of go from fifth gear. And in some cases you had to be in park or you had to be in first gear to get through certain things and, and to get uh, ultimately to get progress on them. So we still use, I would say elements of EOS today, the, the implementer that we use has a slightly uh, morphed version of it that we, uh, that we work with. And I think it works very well for our business today and, and is a, um, you know, if we miss a meeting, uh, we feel sort of out of kilter for that week yeah. because we haven't sort of addressed the key issues. No, I, I, just, I love EOS. We're, we're implementing it, you know, in our own, we don't have the money to pay for an implementer right now, but we've implemented the principles such as the organizational checkup. When I went through the organizational track checkup, it's like 20 or 25 key questions. I realized we don't have a vision for three years, five years from now. Yeah. I don't yeah. think 10 years exists. Um, it's a very low definition vision, but I think that's a key thing also for not just Jing and I's vision or a motivation, but also for the whole team's vision, because it's not really about the money. It's about, am I doing something that's meaningful that I'm going to care about in three years and five years? And that organizational checkup tool was incredibly helpful. The second yeah. one with the people analyzer, now they have the plus, plus, minus, or minus, uh, for, you know, the key values or whatever the firm has. Yeah. And I realized that, you know, number one, we didn't have coherent shared values. And then number two, we didn't really have any granularity to substantiate what those values actually meant. Like most companies have the same general values, but what adds meat to it is what that means specifically to, in examples, the company. And I think the, you know, the biggest takeaway out of that was number one, having shared values. And then we, and then number two, like my biggest weaknesses and just diving into that in the people analyzer. I, I, I would say that um, we still get a lot of value out of, you know, maybe every two or three months, our implementer comes in and sits in in one of our meetings. And it's almost like a, 
chiropractic checkup or something like that. Like, cause they'll come in and, um, sort of say, Hey, you're not, you, you know, you, you dragged on through this section or you didn't address this issue in the right way. And it sort of gets us back, uh, gets our spine aligned, if you will. And, and so that, you know, at, at the right time, I would definitely encourage you to do that. I think it's a, it's a good yeah. outside set of eyes and ears. Uh, back on the feedback topic, what either direct or implied feedback do you think has really impacted you the most over the past 10 years? Or maybe it was recent, or maybe it was you know, a long time ago, but it's really been foundational, that whole 80-20 feedback. This year, having, having gone through uh, the succession planning work where, where I was promoted alongside uh, Brian Demkowitz as, as the managing partner, um, you know, that's, that's, that's probably a situation where you're, you're, you're out there in a much more visible way than maybe I might have been, you know, previously in terms of running deals and managing deals. And that's still something where I spend, you know, 50% of my time. But that, you know, taking on that position was also coupled with leading a kind of a renewed strategic planning exercise at the firm. And it's something that we've done historically at the firm, maybe every two or three or four years where you kind of revisit the strategy. I would say this one was a little a little deeper. And we took the advice that we were giving our portfolio companies that during COVID, take, take a deeper look at your business, make aggressive changes if need be, make changes and make sure you're poised to come out of this COVID time period stronger than, than ever. And so we took our own advice and did a lot of sort of internal work around our strategy. We deconstructed the last 20 years of our firm history and performance and what worked and what didn't work. And so I, I would say that the um, as we started to roll out, and, and, and the other important thing is this was not something that I went in a vacuum and sort of created things and came out with, you know, the stone tablets and said, here's the, you know, here are the new commandments for all of you to listen to. It was a very collaborative approach with the team. The team was involved in doing the work and then ultimately setting the strategy. And, and um, how long uh, was that process? What do you mean the team? Or can you double click on that? Like the team was involved in the work, like how? Yeah, so it, it was um, it, it was really a great experience. So we first of all we had a we we brought in an outside resource to lead the the kind of the strategic planning work. And um, what we did is we created a steering committee, and we had subcommittees of the steering committee. We gathered feedback from um, internal constituents that are employees, external con- constituents, CEOs, management teams. LPs, uh, intermediaries, and we sort of said, we think we know who we are as a firm, but let's see what, you know, what others think we are as a firm. And so we did a lot of introspective work on how are we viewed? What do we think our strengths are? What do we think our weaknesses are? That steering committee, we went through kind of an ambition uh, setting phase where we said, where, where do we want to go as a firm? Where do we think we're poised to be successful? We, we sort of narrowed it down to three main topics. And those three main topics, we had four or five people on the team by design. I was not involved in the the detailed work on those three or four main topics. And the teams went out and did did research. They sort of did, you know, one one of the ultimate outcomes was for us to 
narrow our focus in in terms of uh, industry focus going forward, where we're only going to be focused on service industries, where before we had made investments in manufacturing, consumer products, service focus uh, only. And the teams, uh, they were responsible for doing the research, uh, setting the, uh, you know, setting the framework for how we're going to evaluate things and then making the recommendation. Now, I, I had the ability among, with others to challenge some of the feedback and that, there was a little bit of an iterative process there. But ultimately, the output to all of the strategic planning work, everyone on the team, everybody on the steering committee, and it wasn't everybody in the firm, but you have to strike a balance between sort of bringing everybody along or having you know a core group that you can keep momentum with. At the end of that, the output was something that everybody on that steering committee could look at and say, I had a hand in, in creating that strategy. So it, I mean, that was that was absolutely critical in having this be successful in getting buy-in. Because again, yeah. we've we've done things in the past where maybe, you know, you have a small group that says, here's where we're going. And if you don't have buy-in, it sort of caves in on itself. So that was I think it's a huge testament to the culture that you have to say we have done a lot of things right in the past 20 years. We can always improve. And we're going on just to a new chapter. What does this new chapter look like, team? And let's keep this together and let's build on that. Um, how I, I would say, I, just to add to that, I, I would say that that was, that was important. And it was also a, it was a challenge. If you think about in some ways, starting a new firm might have been easier because you have a blank sheet of paper. And, and where we, ha we had a firm that has had a successful 20-year history, and um, but we recognized that what made us successful 10 years ago, even five years ago in certain cases, was not going to be the thing or the things that were going to drive success going forward. And that was very difficult because you didn't ever want to point to something. And again, the firm has been successful, but you never wanted to point to something and say, this was a mistake, or this was a bad idea, or this is, you know, we're never going to do that again, because we're going to go in this direction. It was not, it was, it was the right strategy at the time. We had to recognize that the market is moving, the market is continually moving, and we have to be continually moving with or ahead of the market if we're going to stay relevant and competitive. And so that was a very, I don't want to say that was a revelation because I think we kind of knew it, but that was a that was a very important distinction in terms of how we were going to take the firm forward. It wasn't we've done a lot of things incorrectly in the past. It was what worked then isn't going to work in the future, and let's let's put these things in place that are going to be that are going to work going forward, and let's set up a process that is that is meant to be evergreen. And so it isn't a let's put a strategy together, let's put a plan together and bind it up and put it on the shelf and let it collect dust. It's we have to have a process every year to revisit, retest our thinking. And there's certain elements of the, the strategy that are going to drop out. There's certain yeah. new elements that are going to be added to it. And um, balancing that nuanced message to, you know, to our team internally and to the market externally um, required, uh, you know, a very delicate, balanced message. And I love that. Yeah. I love that point about, you know, I think a lot of time, I me, mean, what, what we've experienced is it's easy to find 
to point out the negative, like, hey, that didn't work, that didn't work, that didn't work. Okay, cool, let's fix it, move on. But also that mentality of maybe how do we how do we evolve that mentality? Point kind of what you were put on is like what got us here, good and bad, won't get us there. In a spirit of here's where we're at. How do we grow? Yeah. And um that that ties back into feedback, that ties back into culture. On the point about culture, how would you kind of, how would you characterize in, I don't know, three to five ways or however you guys have defined it, you know, what are the values that, I don't know if values are unique, maybe, maybe the collection of values with the examples that substantiate them are unique. Um, and this is more of an ongoing topic that I'm thinking through, like, yeah. are there actually any unique values? <laughs> out there. Um, but how have you guys thought about values? What are your values? What, what is your culture? You can spend like weeks, you know, in offsites trying to, to define that. You know, one of the things we're working on right now is, is sort of refreshing our branding or our messaging and our website profile. And the firm we're working with is, you know, talking to us about what is it that you can own? And, you know, I, I think to myself, it's very hard to find any one thing that you can truly own. And, the, and the, you know, the way I've talked to the team about it is, I think of it like a recipe. And a recipe, you might have a recipe that has three or four or five or 10 different ingredients that are all commodities. But the way you put the recipe together and the way you present the, you know, the, the experience in the dish, that's what makes you unique. So it isn't any one of those one things that is truly unique, but it's how you put these things together we went through and, as I mentioned, did a kind of a revised um, uh, uh, session around our core, our core values. And you think of, you know, your, what is your purpose? What are your core values? And so we, we sort of, we morphed the term core values to things that matter to us. We just think that, that I mean, sometimes you can get, even get confused on, well, wait, is this, a, is this a core value? Is this a purpose? We just said, these are things that matter to us. And, and one of the mantras that came out of our strategic planning, uh, or a few of the mantras, there were there were three main themes, and and one was, and again, any one of these you'll say those sound similar to what I've heard from other private equity firms, and it's true. But um, number one is 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 teamwork, and and teamwork, uh, it we're gonna we're gonna survive, or we're not gonna survive with a team, and that means having you know humility, and not sort of just you know, being, you know, teamwork and partnership. And those are words that get overused, uh, but we want them to mean something. And, and we feel like we have a good 20 year track record. And we think some of the best partners that we've had and some of the best references that we, we have had uh, are the ones where maybe the investment didn't go that well. You know, what is somebody like when the investment isn't going well? So sort of people first. And then the other two, uh, again, main themes, are focus and consistency. Focus, when the firm started 20 plus years ago, we looked at all different types of investments and, and you could, you could, you could uh, get an investment memo and read it on an airplane and show up to a management presentation and ask enough intelligent questions that you could, you could maybe position yourself to buy the business. And, and by the way, you would, you would probably have a good result. Today, you need to know exactly what you want to do. You need to have your playbook drafted, ready to go, ready to execute. And you need to have all those things locked and loaded and ready to go before you even 
know the opportunity exists in terms of the company. So people focus and then repeatability or consistency. And that's, that's really repeatability in execution, having the playbook and, and repeating it again and again. And part of that kind of goes back to focus because if you're, if you're not focused in a certain industry or a certain type of investment, you're going to be sort of getting up that learning curve uh, every time you're pursuing a new investment. So we, th- those are, we have um, what we call seven things that matter to us. So it's team, partnership, focus, consistency, impact, diversity, and fulfillment. And, and not in any particular order, but that was a, that was a revised uh, exercise that we went through as a team. And we, and we involved uh, the broader team in developing those things. Many of them were carryovers from what we did in the past. Yeah, but when we looked at the 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 main tenets of our strategy, were it came back to people, focus, and consistency, and those are really the the things that we beat the drum on and want to need to make sure we deliver for our LPs. Once that framework is established, then it's everyone knows both internally and externally. You know, here's how we should be judged. Yeah, and as partners, as employers as you know, in any relationship. And it's, uh, and what, what we found is that because we didn't have it, there was so much inconsistency. And then once we sat down and finally established it, then everyone's on the same page of, as you're putting it, here's what matters to this team. Well, we, um, we have that, you know, on our, uh, we, we kind of developed our first principles, which is the, you know, the, what are the core principles behind all the things we're doing on our strategy work? And so the first principles page shows up in the in the in the front of any presentation we give to the firm. And then the 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 same page we have our things that matter to us. So when I think about, you know, we've uh, kind of put together an updated uh, LP presentation deck. And one of the first things we're talking to our LPs about are our core values because everything everything, you know, flows from those core values and you can't sort of put it in the appendix. You can't have it as a side thought or an afterthought. It has to have meaning. People have to know what it is and you need to, you need to walk the walk as well. If you're not living up to your core values and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. In some cases you're, you know, you have a situation maybe with an employee that isn't living up to the core values and you can't, you can't set the wrong example and say, well, it's going to be okay for this person to not, uh, you know, treat people with respect. And then we're going to hold everyone else accountable to it. So it, it's. And, and to that point, I think it, it, you know, if there's something where we feel one of us is or is not living up to it, then we have to substantiate, Hey, here's the value. And here's my data points on why I think this is or is not lived up to. Yeah. And that, um, well, let's maybe shift gears a little bit. Um, yeah. So uh, your colleague, Heather, has said that you're a competitive cyclist. Is that accurate? And is there a story behind this and your experience in endurance? So the word competitive, I, 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 we, need to, we need to change that word. Uh, maybe avid, maybe, I, you know, uh, competitive, maybe, uh, maybe a few years ago, I would say the, uh, maybe with taking on some greater responsibilities at the firm, the competitive has been diluted a little bit, but definitely, you know, I, I would say endurance sports, maybe the last 20 years have been things that I've, you know, it's been 
I think you need to have an outside outlet. And it has definitely been an outlet for me. I, I grew up playing team sports. I really didn't like running. I didn't, you know, the individual sports, swimming, I was more of a team sport person. And then as you start to get into the professional world and you're trying to squeeze in, especially when I had young kids, you're out maybe running with the jog stroller. So you're trying to just fight off old age. But I would say the thing that I like about, I started running marathons and then like you, I I kind of found myself uh, doing triathlons. And um, through that, I started to get into cycling. I would say that is my my uh main hobby right now and and some of it is i just i'm a gear junkie so i like to you know see what the latest and greatest gear is do you solve world hunger when you're out on these rides well yeah that's i that's the other you know my wife will tell me you need to go for a bike ride because i'm you know i'm fidgeting around or i have <laughs> but i i will go out and um i usually will be by myself and if you're out on a two or three hour bike ride it's almost like a meditative sort of a thing for me. I, you, you think about a lot of things and I come back with two or three either solutions to problems that I had or uh, new ideas. You know, Heather yeah. will joke that on a Saturday afternoon, all of a sudden she'll get five emails and she's like, I know you just <laughs> went out for a bike ride. Um, but I, 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 I like it, you know, the, the, the endurance uh, element to it kind of ties back to the PE world, the, the delayed gratification. You know, I, uh, I know no matter how high, hard I work, I'm not going to ever slam dunk a basketball, but you can, you can put a training plan together and run a, uh, do a triathlon. Or uh, I, you know, this year I did a, this was not a race. It was a ride across the state of Iowa. And that was, uh, how many miles was that? About 450. And it was, I mean, it was, I mean, there were definitely some people that were there to have fun. I mean, there were Bloody Mary bars, mile one. <laughs> into, and so I don't, I don't know. I mean, I maybe waited till mile 60 before I pulled over and had a beer, but um, it Wait, was, how many, uh, how many, what was your average speed? How many days did it take? So it was a seven day, uh, really six and a half days of a ride. And I did it with two other people from Huron. And um, so we rode together and we pushed uh, each other and pulled each other along. And we averaged, uh, close to 19 miles an hour. So that was for the entire time. So that felt pretty good. Um, and, uh, is this a road bike or a tri bike? The road bike. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, th- this, this ride was, um, we were, we were invited by maybe a dozen other people who had done it for 15 years. And it's uh, it's one of the longest sta- standing rides like this in the U.S. I think it's forty close to fifty years they've been doing it. And the, and some of the folks, you know, after we would finish, uh, they would you know sort of say, "Well, how'd you do today?" And we say, "Well, we did great. We averaged nineteen miles an hour." And they're like, "Okay, well, how many pieces of pie did you eat?" And we're like, "Well, uh, we didn't eat any." We're like, okay, you're missing the point of this ride. I mean, it's a it is a big party. Um, and, um, they have, you know, you have to stop and get ice cream or you stop and get pies or you, uh, they have the Iowa beer tent, which you stop, you know, three or four miles before the finish. And so we decided to try to, you know, take it seriously for a little while, but then, you know, smell the roses a little bit, uh, you know, to (laughs) enjoy ourselves, but it was, it was a great experience. I mean, it was, I think living through COVID and then taking on some of these responsibilities of the firm, you know, going out for a four or five 
hour ride and having just some thoughts to yourself. And there's, you know, no surprise, a lot of corn in Iowa. So you're, you're just kind of, you have sort of the, the, it's conducive to a meditative state. Yeah. You have the metronome like effect and you're kind of in your head. And I, for me, I I need a little bit of that. And I think that's, I say to the team and we definitely uh, um, had some of the, some of the challenges of being over, you know, overtaxed during COVID, I would say to our team, you know, the most important thing we can do is sort of think, just take time out to think. And um, it's a hard thing to do when you're just trying to run around and put out fires. So I think, you know, finding time to do that as a, as a, as an organization is, is a discipline. I think we still need to work on because you, you have your best ideas, you know, you're, whether or not you're out on a bike riding around solving world hunger or you're in the shower or you're yeah. taking a walk or whatever it is, those are some of the best ideas. And you got to have a little bit of space to do that. And so for me, that's what biking is. You know, Heather tells me, I, she, she will joke and say, you, you need an outlet. You got to get, you know, you, you need a, a break. And, uh, and so it is, it's a little bit of, I, I have that same thing. Whenever I go out on runs, like last Monday morning was an 18 mile run before work. And I think yeah. I had 10 to 20 emails that I sent myself on little reminders yeah. and the best ideas come from those periods of not being distracted. Yeah. Um, so let's do a little flash round, a five minute flash round. Okay. To go through some absolutely critical questions. <laughs> and okay. the first question in this five minute flash round is what is your favorite podcast and why? Okay. So that's a very easy one. Hard, hardcore history. And I, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a podcast addict, um, but hardcore history is by far my favorite. And um, I think I was turned on to that by Tim Ferriss. I think he, that yep. was one of his recommendations, but most of the podcasts I'll listen to at two X speed so I can get through them quickly. But yeah, Dan Carlin, he talks too fast. So I have to listen to him at just regular speed, but it's a, you know, it, on the surface, it's a, uh, it's a, a podcast about different, uh, leaders, military, mostly military leaders or different campaigns or different, uh, you know, times in history. But I, I, the, the thing that I've come to appreciate is that it's really more about kind of a human nature, you know, how, yeah. What do you think somebody's thinking in this situation? And you're on the front lines, you're a Roman legionnaire, or what do you think, you know, what was somebody thinking in, in World War One? you know, fighting trench warfare and, and the commonalities between what people were doing and thinking 2000 years ago and things that we're facing today. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the thing I enjoy the most is Dan is not a historian. He'll tell you that, uh, but he will, he will mix, uh, he'll mix metaphors and talk about um, you know, how the Spartans were a mix between Clint Eastwood and Darth Vader. And he just sort of, he brings, you know, a little bit of an extra twist to it. So it's, it's my, uh, it's by far my favorite and, uh, would recommend it to anybody who's willing to try something new. I, I love Dan Carlin. I think he had some quote and I'm paraphrasing this, like never be afraid to do something you're unqualified for. Yeah. And I think that is such a big parallel to what we've experienced in entrepreneurship. And uh, I, I think is, you know, I, I, it's been one of our guiding quotes or maybe just personally, my wife is far more qualified. She got into law school. I didn't, <laughs> I yeah, would have not even tra- got into it. 
one of our portfolio companies has as one of their port or one of their core values, uh, try something new. Eighty percent of the time, it's going to be okay. You know, don't be yep. afraid to fail. So, I agree. Okay. Uh, favorite movies. It's tough to pick one. It's it's tough to probably even pick five. Um, but uh, I would say Apocalypse Now is one of my favorites. My dad was a big movie buff, and he kind of turned me on to Apocalypse Now. I, I, I joke that anything that has cowboys or, you know, some sort of military uh, element to it or, or karate or probably vampires is something <laughs> that, I, that I'm going to like. So um, I say that tongue in cheek, but um, I would say True Grit is another favorite of mine. That's a... Uh, uh, I like the remake better than the original John Wayne, although I'm a big John Wayne fan. And and uh, if you haven't read the book, it's a great book too. All right. And last question, not related to favorite movies, books, podcasts, articles is more conceptual. And if you had like a guiding motivation or what is that, you know, what is, what really motivates you not just for the job, but just general life motivation. What would you, how would you kind of characterize that? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, definitely if I could sort of look back 20 years and give myself some advice, it would be, you know, if things are going to be okay, it's going to be all right. Don't, don't overthink it. Don't obsess about it. But I definitely, um, the, uh, I hate losing, you know, which is a slightly different thing than saying, I love winning, which is, you know, seems, seems to be a little bit of a, of a disconnect, but the, you know, I, I, I hate losing. And, and that's a, that's a, a big, uh, a big component. And, and I would say that, um, you know, the other, uh, the other thing that I would say is, um, you know, building, I, I've gotten a lot of real uh, significant reward out of, out of kind of leading and, and building a team and, and, you know, being in the private equity industry, people are, are, you know, focused on, uh, certainly on, on money and, and, you know, not to say that I'm, I'm just altruistic, but I think I get a bigger kick out of building and leading teams and sort of seeing those teams, uh, succeed. I think that's a, I think that's an important thing. And then probably the last thing is, um, you know, fear of, of, of regret. Um, you know, I, I, that maybe it goes along with the, uh, delayed gratification comment where I think, you know, 20 years in the future, 30 years in the future, I'm going to look back and, and, uh, and regret that I didn't try something or I didn't do something or I didn't put myself out there. And that's, that fear of regret is a, is a motivator for sure. I love that. It's resonates very uh, much with how I think about life and that, you know, what our family has gone through and losing a lot, like my father and brother, you know, that is, uh, that fear of regret of being 75, 80 and looking back and wondering, like, did I after, did I go after it? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I, I look back on our entrepreneurial experience five years ago with the first company that failed. I was like, it really sucked in certain times, but actually looking back, like, guess what? It set us up for the next thing that has worked. And what we thought was going to be bad at the moment wasn't really that bad in the long run. And as long as we kept our integrity and our reputation, like, guess what? One of our three investors in the previous company is now a client. Yeah. yeah. The person who let me go from banking is a client of ours. And that, that pain in the moment 
when looked at in the longer term, it's just, it all works. It works out and having faith that it's going to work out. Well, I think it's, it, I, I don't know which, uh, if it was a, a marathon runner or, or who it was that, that said the quote, but you know, the, the pain of training is much less, uh, in doing the work today is much less than the, the pain of the regret if you didn't, you know, of, of not doing it and not going after it. So it's sort of the same thing for sure. All right. Well, we have indeed covered as promised a lot of ground on this <laughs> and I really appreciate it. you taking the time for us and uh, looking forward to getting it out there. Great. Thanks, Jordan. Appreciate right. it. Sounds Take good. Care. See ya.